You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. And you've got Jason again today with no Amanda because... I have a crazy Valentine's Day story. It involves like 72 appointments today, and she's at like 15 of those right now. I don't know. It's something crazy. So she's out dealing with stuff like she normally does because she is afraid to sit here and push the buttons and have to do the tech stuff with recording. So she says, no, you do that. I will go to the dentist over have to figure that out. (laughs) So today I bring to you Jill Riley. How are you doing today, Jill? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I'm excited to hear from you because... When I first talked to you, I saw your story and went, huh, that's crazy sounding. I want to hear the rest of this because not many people can tell me that they are, uh, that they have been through the foster care system and adopted twice. I read it a few times. I mean, no, no, no. In the foster system twice and adopted, right? And I don't think that's the story that I, in my mind, that makes sense. So can you let us just, just tell your story a little bit, how you got involved in this, how it happened and, and what that looks like for you? Well, uh, it started out in Seoul, Korea. I was abandoned and in an orphanage, and then I was adopted somewhere under the age of two uh, by a family I heard in Detroit, and then they abandoned me and decided they didn't want me. And so another family from Nevada adopted me, and um, my both of my parents were abusive in different ways and uh, violent and um, sexual abuse and, um, and, you know, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse. They were, they were uh, quite, quite the pair. They divorced when I was, when I was quite young and we went to North Idaho then to my mom and brother and sister and I to uh, get away from my father and uh, the abuse continued from her until uh, I was 16 and a teacher finally, I finally went to a teacher and I said, because my mother had made a threat on my life and I went to a teacher and said, "Um, if I don't come back to school on Monday, you should come looking for me Um, because I was, I was fearful of my of my safety and uh that started a process within the school system that they started to track then my my safety and and um a teacher another teacher finally said jill are you uh, are you unsafe are you are you um in danger and told me, encouraged me to leave and asked if I had some place to go. And I did have a friend's house to go to. And so I packed everything up in garbage sacks and, uh, left, left my house and, uh, 
went to this friend's house. And so I was there for a while and then they just for a few days and they, we found out that my mother had filed a runaway report and the cops were out looking for me and that sounded terrifying. And so we ended up uh, going through the department of family services and, and through a process there ended up in foster care and went through the legal system there and ended up with custody being returned to my mother. And then she decided to abandon me altogether and didn't want anything to do with me. And so I went back to the first family. So I was no longer a ward of the state because they had decided that I would go back with my mother. So I was just kind of a um, free, free agent at that point and ended up with the first family again until I graduated high school. So I've kind of kind of hit several different, several different aspects of the journey when it comes to foster care and, and adoption. Wow. Your story kind of goes all over the country, all over the world, really. I mean, that's, it kind of does. That's just, wow. You know, I mean, you have multiple adoptions, international adoption, you have foster care, reunification, abandonment several times. Um, Wow. Now, I have to ask, because a while back we interviewed Aaron Reader. If, if the listeners remember, we talked with Aaron, and I'm actually in a dad's group with her husband, uh, Scott, and that's how I found out about her story. And Aaron is, she's they, they live in Michigan now, I believe, and I think she was, I can't remember exactly where she was born, but I believe it was up in that area somewhere. And she said there were a lot of Korean adoptees in that community um, when she, when she was little, because she was adopted from Korea as well as a baby. Mm, okay. So that was just an interesting, an interesting thing that you might mention that you were, you were kind of in that same world up there. Well, sort of, I was raised in North Idaho, which if you remember in the eighties, North Idaho was a hotbed for the white supremacists. And so in a class of 550 students, there were three ethnic students. Everybody else was white. Um, so there was not an adoption population group in North Idaho. It still is very, very white, uh, not very ethnically diverse at all, because it still kind of carries the stain from that season of the of time. But yeah, that's what was going on when I was growing up. They were bombing buildings, skinheads were marching down the street, uh, burning crosses on the lawn, that kind of stuff. Well, I don't remember Idaho in that time frame because I was still pretty young myself. But I can mm-hmm. tell you that being a brown kid in very, very, very rural Tennessee in the 80s, I, I, I understand what you're talking about. I was the yeah. only kid who looked like me back then. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the charming good looks to get me through that I do now. <laughs> <laughs> you notice how I say that when my wife isn't sitting beside me. <laughs> I'm sure she would agree, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> no, my wife is brutally honest, and that's okay because that's what that's what helps me get through is having somebody to keep me in check. But yeah, it's, I experienced some of that myself growing up, and that that's a tough thing. So, I mean, from that time frame, how much do you think that that experience has really formed your your worldview that you've grown up with? Well, I think it has affected me in in many different ways. One of the things that happened was 
when I left to go to college, I got a scholarship to go to college, several scholarships, and I went to college in Seattle. And Seattle, of course, is a very high Asian population. And so the Asian kids would say, you know, are you Chinese? And I say, no, you know, so they'd go sit someplace else. You know, are you Korean? Yes. They'd sit with me and talk with me. And I started working at a Korean church and I was so readily accepted and brought in and they were just like, you know, you're one of us, and you're a Korean and, and we are too. And so you can hang with us and you just need to learn the language, everything else. You, you just fit right in. And I had Korean friends that it took them two years to quit speaking Korean to me because they felt like I was so ethnically and predisposed to habits and mannerisms and all of that of the Korean population that that they were like, hey, you're one of us. And so I went through this big identity crisis because I was like, am I white or am I Asian? Because I had never been singled out very much as being Asian. I just kind of assimilated into the dominant culture. And so I had never really considered myself ethnically diverse. I had never even really thought about that that much, to be honest. Um, and so, so I went through this huge identity crisis trying to figure out who I was in, um, and at 17 when I went to college. So that's the most, that the biggest way that I find that it impacted me. And I came out with the answer of, I am both. Yes, I am. I, I'm a Korean American. And so I identify with with two different cultures, really, and have tried to learn and educate myself and expose my children to culture as much as possible and and diversify that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that whole culture thing is big. It's, it really is, because you know, little known fact about me, but when I was in the military, I was a Korean linguist. And oh, so, interesting. Yeah, my daughter is a Korean linguist. Really? In the military? Yes. Really? Yes. Air Force. Okay. So she was, she was out at DLI out there in Monterey, California, right? She did the DLI. Yes. 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 And I would ask if that eagle is still standing on the statue if she was here and she'd probably know what I was talking about, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So do you, here's the important question. Do you eat kimchi? I have never been able to get it in my mouth. I can eat so much of, I love Korean food, but the kimchi, there's something about it that just, my body rejects <laughs> it. My hand won't, I, I've had the, the uh, chopsticks full of it and I just can't get it in. Mm -mm. And yep. yeah, we, well, when we were in class out there, we had, so, you know, we had a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, mostly all Korean instructors at the time, they're all native right. language speakers and, and they would come back from lunch and a lot, like you could smell the kimchi throughout the building and it just, oh, yeah. oh, my body couldn't handle it. I was like, nope, nope. And nope. You go into a traditional Korean home and the garlic just is perfume. I, I can handle the garlic. There's something in the kimchi that they were serving out there at the time that was just not doable for me. I will say though, you, you pull out some bulgogi or some kimbap and, and we're ready. I like, I'm oh, ready yeah. to go. But which branch were you in? I was in the army. On the army. Okay. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. The air force was the way to go. Tell your daughter she's smart because they actually got paid extra money when I was in for separate rations because the army food that they were serving us was substandard for the air force. Listen, they get substandard living pay if they have to stay in army housing. 
Uh huh. I thought that was unfair. Yeah. But to be fair, I was after that I was stationed on an Air Force base for a little while, and I went, "Oh wow, this is really nice." And I found out our, the barracks they put us in were slated for demolition as soon as they could find a place for the Army detachment. I was like, "Wow." I'm yep, surprised they didn't just put is, us in tents and knock the building. True stories. True stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to teach you an important Korean phrase, but you, you know, you, she could probably pronounce it better than I because it has been 20 years. But, you know, Pak Song Sing Nim, one of my favorite instructors out there, he, he just was an amazing dude, but he had a great sense of humor and he taught me how to say, which, if you're not familiar, means. That he says, he says to me, he says, it means your head is like an empty rice bowl. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever he'd ask me a question, I could respond with that if I didn't know the answer. Yeah. Nice. What an experience. Well, how cool is that, that your daughter ended up going out and, and doing a language study like that in her life? Because I mean, growing up in the States, there's not a lot of places to learn Korean. No. And, you know, it was interesting to me when she when she tested for languages, you know, these cat four cat, you know, languages were like Russian and Mandarin and Korean. And I don't know what the other one is, Pashto maybe. Um, But she chose Korean because she wanted to know more about the culture and and was slated that way. But she is half Korean. And so her instructors really rode her a lot and were like, you need to be doing better at this. You're Korean. And she's like, I was raised in Montana. And (laughs) (laughs) so but, you know, our dream is to go back to Korea. I would love for her to take me. And to me, that feels very uh, full circle because I was a child there, but I haven't been there since since I was adopted. And so there to me is something really poignant about that experience that I that I would like to experience. Yeah, I mean, that's just an amazing opportunity for you to, to really gain some of that culture that you missed out on. Because yeah. I don't know how much Korean food you've eaten, probably quite a bit if you were working for a quite Korean a church. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry to all the people who say they love Chinese food or they love Japanese hibachi or <laughs> the Koreans got it going on. They do. They do. Absolutely. We love Korean food. I don't know how they're not all 250 pounds because. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's that's just amazing. So so you came you over. You know what I think is funny is people always ask me if I'm from North Korea or South Korea. And I'm like, you know, there aren't a lot of North Koreans running around, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's so funny. It's like, huh. Yeah, I think it really hilarious. speaks to the the lack of cultural awareness people have about that. You know, they know something about North Korea's, you know, not good is the kind of picture in right. most people's minds, but they don't understand if you came from North Korea, your life would probably be enough in danger that you wouldn't tell anybody if you were. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's just crazy stuff. But you know, all those pieces and parts of culture are things that, that you lose when you're adopted international at a young age like that. But at the Absolutely. same time, I mean, it's probably better than ending up in an orphanage for years and years trying to trying to be adopted or maybe not even getting adopted in, in a country somewhere. So it, it's, you know, good, bad. I don't know that that's a tough call. Well, you know, in my case, uh, it, it makes it 
complicated because the second adoption, well, I mean, first of all, you know, you talk about abandonment, attachment disorders, all of that kind of stuff. I was like set up for that. Right. Um, because of being adopted and abandoned and adopted and, you know, and, uh, and all of that. So that has had its own potential complications to it, but then given the family that I was adopted into, finally, uh, there was so much, so much trauma and so much abuse and so much nastiness that there are times that I wonder if it wouldn't have been better if I wasn't adopted, if it wouldn't have been better if I would have had a life being raised there. Now it's, you can't speculate on that, right? Because there's no framework. You don't even know what that would have been like. But from my perspective, when I look at some of the things that I've struggled with and that I've lived through, I I have at times wondered um, what the alternative would have looked like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of those things we wonder about what would have been in our lives. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so... So you were two years old, right? When you were adopted and brought over to the States. Is that right? Somewhere younger than that. Um, I was lied to about that my whole life. I didn't find this out until I was 17, um, 16 actually. And um, I didn't find out about the first adoption. Uh, I was, I was told something totally different and then I found out about it. So somewhere under the age of two or around two, I think I was adopted by the second family. So I don't know when the first adoption actually happened. I don't have, I mean, they destroyed paperwork. There's, there's nothing. Wow. Yeah. A lot of those paper, that paperwork from international adoptions is almost impossible to get a hold of, especially from that time frame. Right. And they didn't open um, Holt that I was adopted through, didn't open their adoption records until 1990. And in 1990 was the year that uh, I went through foster care and switching families and then went to college. And then my father, you know, walked back in my life and I had foster parents and step parents and in-laws and, you know, I mean, just all, all sorts of craziness. So. Wow. I didn't want to know. We talk a lot about trauma on this show and it sounds like you hit the nail on the head earlier. You were set up for all kinds of attachment traumas, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because, (sighs) you know, the random, you know, being separate and attached so many times before the age of two and then um, having just disrupted bonding because of abuse really had the potential to capitulate me for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to, I want to get back to that here when we get through your story, because I think, I think that's a very important piece to touch on, but you know, then you were adopted into, into um, um, let's see Detroit and you said that one was not a terribly good experience, right? We don't know anything about it. Apparently, I had a whole bunch of brothers and uh, they decided they could, didn't want me, so readopted me. So we don't know much about 
I don't know much about that. Uh, my mother possibly knew, but um, she's gone now. So, so with, with like biological brothers or adoptive brothers? I have no in that family. I had adopted brothers, so I was adopted into a family that had kids, apparently. Okay. Um, and then I was adopted into a family that had kids and, and we are, so we are adopted siblings. We aren't blood related at all. I don't know any blood related uh, relatives. So genetic testing, DNA results, that sort of thing would not help. That's what I was really kind of wondering about. <laughs> you know, I have been curious and my kids are curious um, if I am, if I am full blood Korean or what I am, they would like to know. What's really funny about that is all my Chinese friends will say, oh, you look so Chinese. You must be Chinese. And all my Korean friends are like, oh, you look so Korean. You must be Korean. So, you know, somewhere in between there lies the truth. And maybe I'm neither who knows <laughs> yeah the lines get blurred there somewhere my guess at a glance would have been chinese before korean but you know that's knowing what i know and the experience that i had with a lot of korean people for a long time there are certain things that that tend to show up as, as factors and in, in the way that mm -hmm. the koreans look but i mean it's like every other every other people group like we all look a little different yep yep the DNA testing is really interesting, though. I did take one of those DNA tests a while back because, you know, genetically speaking, I'm pretty certain I'm just ambiguously brown. And so I took the DNA test and it said they drew a circle around Europe and said, yep, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really about all I got out of it. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be interesting and especially for my children, um, for them to they're starting to have kids now. And and so uh, I think it'd be interesting for them to know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the real truth is, is that at the end of the day, I think we're all going to figure out the browning of America is a real thing. And we're all going to not have a clue. And most people are going to end up with a, a circle around a whole bunch of areas in, in their history because pure any any race, any any um, genetic background is not going to exist for much longer because we have finally gotten to the point where we at least accept multiracial marriages and families pretty well yes. in most parts of the country. Yes, we're getting better at that, definitely. Yeah, I don't, I'm not ready to say we're there yet because we've experienced some of that. You know, there are still a couple sundown towns here in, in Missouri, and, and we found ourselves in, in a couple of those and, and figured out real quick that you know, we weren't welcome because, you know, my wife is obviously Irish, painfully mm -hmm. Irish. <laughs> she makes a sheet of paper look tan sometimes, and I am obviously not, and that, that raises eyebrows. And, and we have foster kids with us sometimes, you know, they look way different than us. And, you know, we had a, a little guy with us once and, and Carl, well, that's what I call him, not his real name, but Carl was the blackest baby you ever met in your life. Just super dark mm. skin, just a joy of a kid. One of the happiest kids I've ever met in my life. And you would be amazed how many people were openly offended by the fact that between my wife and I, oh. we were carrying around a baby that looks so totally different than both of us. Oh, it's ridiculous. It absolutely, absolutely is. Absolutely is. I, that's, it makes us crazy to even deal with it. But okay. So let's talk about, you know, your time in Nevada when you were, you were uh, adopted into a family in Nevada. What was, what was that like for you? Well, I have an older brother and an older sister. Um, and uh, they were, 
adopted ahead of ahead of me. Um, my mother and father, you know, the memories that I have of of that house and that time are of just violent fights and hiding under the crib and with my brother and sister away from them. And, you know, and so I remember that um, I was sexually abused by my father and um, he was like the head of the chamber of commerce or something. He was the head of the church board. Um, he was also a pornographic photographer and um, molested my sister and I and was extraordinarily violent in his tastes. And um, so that was that's that. And when we left Nevada to move to North Idaho, I remember seeing his stuff roped off in the corner of the room in the living room as we left. And I remember one specific chair that was his. And all I knew is that the stuff was staying and we weren't. And so that's, that's kind of, all that encapsulates North Idaho or, or Nevada for me because we were, I was five or yeah, it was like five when we moved to four or five when we moved to Idaho. Wow. That's, that, that should, should bring out a lot more disbelief in me than it does. But, you know, having been in this world long enough, you stop having disbelief. I think sometimes at some of the stories that, yeah. that you hear around this, but you know, I don't know if, if you remember the uh, the BTK killer, bind, torture, kill was from that time yes. frame, actually. And my wife likes to watch all kinds of TV shows that we shouldn't watch right before you go to bed. But she was watching one just last night about him. And I believe he was the president of the church board in his local mm-hmm. area. And it, it makes you go, huh? Like, yeah, uh, how? But yeah, complete double lives. Yeah. And, you know, they, they didn't find the guy till like 30 years later or something. It was, it was ridiculous how that, that stuff can happen. But, um, you know, you, you also talked about how, you know, after that you, you went back, you were reunified with your, with your birth parents, not, not birth parents. No. Yeah. I'm going to mess this all up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, um, you we went to North Idaho. So I was with my, with my mother and then, uh, I ended up in foster care after that. So. Wow. Yeah. That's quite the, uh, quite the crooked path to get to where you were. It's, this is not a straight line story for sure, right? No, no, not at all. And so you end up back in that same household, I assume, minus the father figure. I end up with, well, after we left Nevada, I was with my mother and my sister and brother. And then we, my mother, when I was in the seventh grade, married a man and uh, who I adored, my stepfather. And then, uh, then within a year and a half, they were divorced. And so then we were alone with my mother again. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the, 
timeline of events, the, the actual happenings were, uh, my mother was violently abusive. And uh, I remember, I remember checking my clothes to make sure that I wasn't bleeding through my clothes. So people wouldn't notice. So, I mean, she was, she was terribly violent and, uh, that's, that's how I was was raised and it got worse and she got more controlling as I got older because my older sister and older brother left and she was really concerned about hanging on to me and controlling me and keeping me in her life. So. Wow. So you got like cultural and identity issues going on and just a ton of potential trauma issues, not potential. There's real trauma there. Let's, let's just be honest, real trauma and Real trauma at especially particular ages where you're in developmental stages, that causes attachment issues. And that right. can look like anything from just not trusting people very much all the way out to things like, you know, severe reactive attachment disorder, which can look a whole lot like psycho, uh, a psychopath. Right. And it's not right. it's not the fault of the child. It's the fault of the people who put them through that sort of stuff. So how did you navigate all that? Because... So far talking to you, I haven't seen psychopath in your eyes yet. (laughs) (laughs) You just got to stick around long enough. (laughs) No, you know, I I often think about that in the, in the work that I do in talking with people about trauma, how I sidestepped or how God really intervened and, and sidestepped, you know, I, I'm the perfect setup for rad and for so many other problems. And I, I don't have some of those problems. I certainly have trust issues. I certainly have intimacy issues, but I don't have some of the, the attachment trauma. And, you know, my therapist is, is very, honest about that. She said, you know, somewhere, and actually my psychiatrist is the one who first said this and said, you know, somewhere in your life, someone loved you. Someone took care of you. Someone showed some kind of nurture. So whether it was in Korea or maybe the story that I don't know about my initial adoptive family is not true, but somewhere someone showed me positive mapping of behavior. So I don't know where that was and I don't know how that happened and maybe that didn't happen. And it was just part of a, of a divine plan for me, but no, I've been very fortunate with relationships in my life and um, been married to my husband now for 29 years, have four children and a granddaughter and, um, and just, count myself amongst the luckiest of people. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Because reactive attachment can be such a big, such a big thing. I mean, we deal with some of that in our own home. So I understand some of the ins and outs of of that particular um, experience and it's not fun. It's hard. It's challenging. And it's very hard. It's typically not the fault of anybody in the room. Right. And so that's always super hard. But you mentioned, you mentioned your faith in there a few times. And so we didn't mention it right at the beginning. And so you have a podcast called Post Traumatic Faith. Yes. I love that name because I've heard of post traumatic stress disorder. I've heard of post traumatic growth. I've never heard of anybody talking about post traumatic faith. So what do you mean by that? Because I'm terribly interested. Well, to me, it's really, it's really that space in between where 
trauma and hardship and challenge and struggle meet with uh, overcoming and faith and hope. And so people who are on my podcast talk a lot about the challenges that they've faced, but then they talk about how they were able to come through that with some monicum of, of hope maybe even joy of faith. Not everybody, it's not, um, it's not a one lane on faith. There are many different flavors of, of faith journeys that are represented on the podcast, but it's uh, very interesting to hear how faith is sustaining people, how it sustains people through the hardest of times. And, and then there are those who, for them, they just really feel like that's not operative in their life at all. And that tells a story of its own too. So, so post-traumatic faith is really where, where those journeys meet, where faith and hardship meet together in the middle. Well, I'll definitely be listening in because that that the think the reason that resonates so hard with me is uh, most of the listeners know I grew up in a in a very Christian fundamentalist church that I did not feel like I gained very much out of that was very healthy whether they were teaching the things they were teaching or it's just what I heard um, I'll leave that for somebody else smarter than I to to decide but I know that when I left that church I walked away from everything that was any type of belief for a while. And I spent a decade and a half doing everything I was told not to do. Turns out, just in case anybody listening is thinking that's a good way to go, that actually is a painful process to do, and it's not a good idea. <laughs> Hangovers <laughs> are bad. <laughs> and I, in my time in the military, I was I was an alcoholic because when you're a young man and you have no wife or children and no responsibilities other than it being a formation at 5 a.m., and you can be drunk for that formation because you're going to do PT, you will be sober by the end, I promise. And I, I lived that life, right? right? And I lived that life going for a long ways. And, and, and then, uh, then after I became a father in a few years ago, well, more than a few now, um, it's been seven years ago, we lost our oldest daughter and I stepped right back in, into that alcohol with, you know, that with a, with a fervor. And it's, it's been a little over five years since I had a drink. But once I came out of that, Congratulations. I found one of the, the only thing that took me through that journey was, was the one, one of the very few things I pull from that, that experience growing up was some of the old hymns, right? Some of the old, mm -hmm. old church hymns that, that I grew up with. And, and one of them, if anybody's familiar with it, is called It Is Well With My Soul. And that particular song um, was, the guy starts out with, you know, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you've taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And let me tell you something. I found out the story of that song. Man, Horatio mm. Spafford wrote that song. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, Incredible and history. He wrote that song in the belly of a ship that was going over to Europe at about the point where his wife and daughters were killed on their voyage a few months earlier to go over. And for that man to be able to write that song in that moment and to read those words and go, okay, like I should be able to make it, I should be able to survive this. And that was you see that that music score hanging above my head behind me is is that song. <laughs> I have a sign over there that says it is well with my soul. I have actually several of them um, around the around the house. And and that's one of those things that has been so impactful to me. And it really has started my, my own faith journey back into this process. 
You know, for me, you know, I mentioned my father being a part of the the leadership of the church. My mother was the church secretary. I was literally raised in the church. And then I was raised in a very, very fundamentalist Christian home in a in a very oppressive kind of cultish environment and, you know, private school and the whole nine. And, and then we ended up in a more charismatic environment, but we were the kind of people that were in the church whenever the church doors were open. We, uh, you know, never wore pants to church. We were, you know, always, I mean, just very, very conservative and very dedicated to the church. And actually when I went through the custody battle with the state custody hearing, uh, the church had found out what was going on and they were the pastoral staff, including like my youth pastor and youth leadership were told not to get involved because it was a family matter. So they said, stay out of it. And so when it came time for the court the court case for custody hearing people from the church showed up and testified against me to say that my mother would never touch me that she would never harm me and and all of that to say that in the middle of that i still there was something in me that said people are people and god is god and they're not the same and the church can be operational with flawed people and i spent 25 years as a minister uh, i only the last 6 years of my life i have not been a pastor in in a congregation but for the previous 25 years that's what i did as an occupation because somewhere in me there was this hope that the church could be what it was meant to be and provide hope and a vehicle for for hope and that we hopefully wouldn't mess it up too bad in the process wow if you don't mind my asking uh, what what type of church did you grow up in I grew up in the first one that I that I remember it was a sh- called a shepherding church and that was out of a group out of Alaska and it was a Protestant denomination but they were very um, like we're going to tell you how to spend your money and what decisions to make and who you date and who you marry and all of that kind of thing and then I was raised in the charismatic church in the Assemblies of God and so I worked as an Assemblies of God pastor for about. 18 years, something like that. And then the last, uh, the last part of my career I have spent with the evangelical covenant church. So, uh, not quite, and that's not quite as fundamentalist, um, as what I was raised with and not quite as charismatic. So I kind of, yeah. Found that road in the middle. Sort of, sort of. Yeah. I, I try to avoid the C word because if my mom listens to the podcast, she gets upset if I call the church I grew up in a cult because, well, <laughs> she still is a part of that congregation and, and it makes her upset. So I don't yes. have to worry about her listening yeah. to it right now, but at some point she may stumble across it. And sorry, mom, but you know, I, I totally understand what you're talking about because so much of what I see in today's quote unquote religious religiosity, the religions of the world today have so much to do with other humans trying to control you more Mm -hmm. so than understanding that this whole thing wasn't about us. If you read that book front to back and really understand it, it wasn't about us. 
And we ain't supposed to tell nobody how to spend their money or who they date or how they live their life. It, it has like the whole point had nothing to do with that. That's not what, what the what the, the book said. It, it was a whole lot about a relationship with God and not a whole lot about how you can control the people in your church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's a difficult thing for us. You know, I, I go all the way back to I remember the moment that my mom and dad had divorced and and the pastor took my brother and I downstairs after church one night and told us basically that if your dad doesn't come back to the church and repent in front of everybody and turn away from it all, um, then you can't have any communication with him anymore. And for mm-hmm. I was about 18, 17 years old. And my little brother, he's he was probably about 10 or 11 at the time. And so to tell two young boys that you can't ever talk to your dad again or you're going to hell, that was kind of that straw for me that just said, nope, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. Right, right. Well, I just really had no option except to be involved in the church. And that was my haven. The caveat was nobody, nobody could, uh, know what was going on in my home. Nobody could know about the abuse. Nobody knew. It was very closeted. My mother was very much of a chameleon. She was picture perfect on the outside and had us controlled so much that we never told anybody anything that was going on. And I, apparently we did at one point, my sister at one point uh, had had told me that we had told a friend's mother in the church, but she reported back to my mother. And apparently we were beat so bad that, I mean, I don't even recall the incident. So she was uh, violent and controlling to the very definition of. Wow. Yeah, that's, that that's kind of a terrifying aspect because in the group I grew up in, my, my dad was a local police officer. And so mm-hmm. as much as that stuff is hidden in so many places, um, one of the things my dad did not abide well was child abuse. Um, if he, if you were abusing your child when he showed up, I'm sorry about your luck, but it was the eighties. Right. And they did police yeah. work different back then. And you probably did not want certain police officers to show up if they took real offense to that because his own childhood was not exactly a great one. And um, and so he would tell stories to my mom sometimes and they didn't realize all the time how thin the walls were. And we heard a lot of those stories. Mm-hmm. And I knew the people in our church who were supposed to be great people, wonderful, upstanding members of the church, you know, a real man of God. And then you hear this story through the wall. You're like, wait a second. Or the one guy in church that you're not allowed to be around alone because um, because he was a child molester. And you go, yeah. wait a second, hang on. Like, I understand forgiveness and all, but this was actively going on. And so it was something that, that a lot of times just gets pushed under the rug and hidden all for, for whatever reason. I, I wish I could understand why some of these organizations do that. Right. Well, and, and what part of... Self-preservation has to be present in them to say we're going to deny the reality in front of us that this child is being harmed and we're going to turn a blind eye to it. If there's anything that was a commandment in the in the scriptures is if you're going to follow that is love God, love people. And what about loving children and Jesus loving children is represented by the fact that you're going to turn your eye away from what is happening right in front of you. There's just, there's no, I I just think there's a, just a 
special place in hell. If you believe in hell, I just think there's a special place in hell for, for people who, um, who harm children. I sure hope so. <laughs> Cause I know a few people that, that have reservations if so. And, yeah. uh, and because that's something that's been so hard for me to even get, and maybe that's part of where it comes from in me. Um, I, I recently was working through a project with a, a friend of mine um, where we were defining our, our spiritual purpose and coming up with a spiritual purpose statement. And that was one of the things that, you know, this guy's known me. I've known Joe for years and years. Actually, Joe, uh, Joe Bailey is his name and he's getting ready to come out with his own podcast called the Reman podcast. And, and Joe's a spiritual guy, like one of the, one of the better people I've met in my life. He's been a huge mentor to me. And one of the things he said, he's like, like, dude, there's something about taking care of kids that's in your soul, right? That that's Mm -hmm. part of who you are. And, and so, yeah, it's to me, I look at that and wonder how people can, can do that and still see themselves in any kind of positive light. And I don't know that yeah. they do. They, it, this probably dies off into a bit more psychology than, than I'm qualified to, to talk about because my psychology degree is on the wall over here, but it's, it's written in crayon and uh, <laughs> I had to help with making it with my, my little kid. Right. So that, yeah, my psychology yeah. degree is not exactly up to par yet. Well, you know, I just think there is some self aggrandizing and some, just delusion that makes someone say it's okay to harm a child and the, to, to gain control. And, and ultimately that's what it is, right. Is, is a control grab. And um, I, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of delusion that goes into that to say that I can control the outcomes and come out with, you know, in in a negative way, try to control it and come out with some kind of a positive result. It just isn't going to happen. So I have to ask as a pastor for many, many years and someone who suffered a lot of, of abandonment and horrible abuse at the hands of other humans, how do you reconcile forgiveness through that for in your own life? Well, I think for me, it took a really long time to understand that forgiveness is a a medicine you give yourself and you can forgive somebody without them reciprocating that. And if you don't, and if you are unable to move past. Now I'm not talking about therapeutically. I'm not talking about the trauma results and all of that. I'm talking about um, spiritually and emotionally. If you can not move past into some sort of forgiveness, I think it becomes a, a poison to your, to your soul and to your spirit. And, but there were times when it was like every 10 seconds, I swear, I was saying, I, I forgive my mother. And then eventually it became 20 seconds and eventually it became, you know, five minutes and a half hour. And I would, you know, and I think it's a process. It's not an event. I think it's a dimmer switch, not a light switch when you talk about forgiveness. And so I, 
I think that the decision to forgive can be a light switch, but I think the process of it is a, is a journey. It's not, it's not the destination. It's all about the journey. So there are times my mother passed this past year. Um, but there were times when I would just think, and she didn't speak to me from the time that I entered the foster home until she died. She didn't speak to me. And there were times when I just thought there is no way I can forgive this woman for all of the harm she's caused and the irreparable damage. And then I have to remember that uh, this is my responsibility to my own soul to take care of it and to nurture it. And if that means forgiving somebody for their actions against me, no matter what the depth of the harm then I need to do that for my own self. You know, I hear the phrase forgive and forget thrown around a lot. Um, what do you think about those two words put together like that? I don't think you forget. I, 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 in trauma therapy for a reason, it's because my body tried to forget my, my mind tried to forget my whole system spent my entire adult life trying to um, cover up and mask and compensate for all of that trauma until, um, you know, I have in my uh, psych, psych, psychiatric evaluations and all of that, they call it traumatic organization, which means, you know, it's like, you know, you just, it's, something happens and it's like a book on a shelf. You just put that away and something else happens and you just put that away. And they said, Jill, you had all this trauma that happened and the shelf broke and now you've got a mess. And I ended up having a nervous breakdown and ended up in a psych hospital for a long term. And so, so it's not that I forgot my body tried to, I mean, my, my mind tried to forget, but your body still remembers. And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the body keeps the score and Bessel van der Kolk and, and your body really does remember the trauma and there is a process that it needs to go through to disseminate that. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we've seen that played out in so many kids that we've had come through our house. And so I'm, I'm curious from, from the perspective of someone who has been through a lot of this stuff and it's come out the other side, trying to help others deal with that experience on their own. When you, when you talk to an audience of people who are looking at foster care as a lifestyle, what is it that we as providers need to be looking out for maybe? And, and most importantly, what is it that we need to hear so that we can approach this stuff in a way that's not more traumatic or more damaging? Right. I think you have to remember as a foster, as a foster parent, that you are there on behalf of the child, not for yourself, not for um, any other reason, except to nurture and protect that child as if they were your own. My foster parents were tremendous. And uh, same with my guardian parents. I call them my guardian parents. That's the first house that I ran away, away to. They're still involved in, in our lives. And But you have to remember that you're there on behalf of the welfare of the child and and that is your sole responsibility. And, and my foster parents, um, actually, 
they did something very illegal. They helped pack me up uh, to move me out of state when the state gave custody back to my mother because they knew that um, I was in a life life endangering situation. Um, but their, their actions were such that they were saying, we, we want you to survive this at the end. Now they were, they were nurturing, they were kind, they were loving, they were all of those things. But at the end of the day, they were there for my protection. And I think that's really important to remember. And I, and I think it's also important, uh, to, to be trauma informed. I don't know, um, every system is different as far as how much education they give their potential foster parents. But I think it's really important to have trauma-informed care because kids who come into foster care inevitably have trauma in their lives and it's going to play out somehow. Yeah, I believe it was Josh Ship who said it, and I'm going to mess up the quote a little bit, but I'll get the gist of it right. And that is that every child is one caring adult away from a success story. And it sounds like you Absolutely. had a couple of those in your life, at least to help help you guide your way towards a real success. I have. I have. I've had, you know, I always say that I had, you know, just kind of these terrible circumstances that I was raised under, but I had some really great examples also of loving kind adults going through life. But, you know, they were so... Um, such a mixed pot, like my stepfather who adored me and who I loved very much, but turned a blind eye when my mother beat me so bad. I had to miss school for, you know, a week and a half and, you know, just to, to cover the, the beating. Um, and so they were, you know, fatally flawed people because all of us are at some level, but I did have some examples of really good, positive, loving behavior in my life. Wow. It's amazing how, how much difference a person can make in, in the life of another human, especially a child, if you can step in and, and be that, that angel for a moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think my life is representative of, of the investment of, of many people. Yeah, that that's, that's awesome. Well, Jill, I love your story because number one, it's terribly unique. And number two, even with all the trauma and the hard parts at the beginning, mm-hmm. you seem to have really made it out, made it into the world and not only just survived the trauma, but you're helping others through that with your, your own podcast and your own journey. And that's just friggin' amazing because most people are doing good if they can just survive it and, and make it to the end of their own life, let alone helping others. So that, that just blows me away that, that you have come from such a hard place and coming into such a helpful place. Well, I hope it's helpful. My, my goals and my aspirations are, uh, to, to be a window into hope in somebody's life. Yeah. I love that word. Cause if somebody else hadn't already stolen it, one of the podcast names I had originally come up with was hope dealers. Turns out that one's already taken. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Yeah. I love that. That one. Um, but unfortunately, somebody else had that one. So I had to go a little bit different route. But but yeah, because isn't that what we're really doing is just trying to trying to deal some hope out into the world to people who who feel very hopeless. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for your time and your willingness to share your story. I know that sharing stories like this often isn't easy for a lot of people. So the fact that you're willing to come on here and share that story is amazing. So thank you so very much. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me share. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Jill's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have a new episode every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account at Buy Me a Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We wanted to open up a dialogue and talk with some of the listeners a little bit and just see what you guys have to say. We have a voicemail line. It is at 413-FOSTER-3. That's 413-367-8373. Now, we would love to be able to share some of your stories. If you have a couple quick stories you want to put on the air, or if it's something you'd just like to talk to us a little bit and let us know what you're hearing and what you would like to hear, that would be awesome. We would love to have that from you guys. So if you would reach out and let us know. Also, I'm going to uh, just assume that you guys know that we are talking about putting some of these stories on the air. So if there's some privacy issues, feel free to change a name. Don't use a name. I don't care. Just take care of the privacy stuff. We don't want anybody getting in any trouble on anything like that. We're not trying to out anybody's story out here in the world. So just be mindful of privacy. Again, that is the phone number is 413-FOSTER-3. 413-367-8373. Thanks a lot, and we hope to hear from you soon.